Our scripture reading for today um, comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 18. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation amongst whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of God. Good morning. Okay. Uh, my name is Matt Moynihan. I'm an intern here at Christ Central, and it's my uh, privilege and honor to be before you um, proclaiming uh, and preaching God's word. Uh, this morning I'm preaching again from Philippians 2, uh, the passage following after the, the text that Charles preached on last week. Uh, so we have, a, we have our own little uh, mini-series, if you will. Um, uh, last week, Charles preached, uh, preached that we are uh, living out cover songs of Jesus Christ, that we are called to live lives of humility, live lives of, of obedience. And again, this week, we are going to take up a very similar theme. Um, this week, we are going to talk about how Christ has called us to be um, Olympians after his name. Please pray with me briefly before I, uh, I begin preaching. Our Father, we thank you for this time we have, this word that you've given to us, uh, and this time that you've called me to proclaim it. And I pray that you just be with me, and that you would uh, cause me to rest entirely in your power, and really believe the text before us, that you are at work, both to will and to work, and that you would just show that to be true in my life, and that you would show that to be true in the lives of all of us here. In Christ's name, amen. It was a shot, and he was off. One, white, one black man followed by a gaggle of white men. Sounds like a familiar story, but it's, it's not what you expect. Running for his life, just in time, he crosses the finish line. The man, Jesse Owens. The time, 1936. The place, Berlin. The capital of Aryan eugenics the capital of the philosophy that the white man, the Aryan man, is supreme. And Jesse Owens, in one flashing victory and three others that followed, put that to the test and proved it false. Like Jesse Owens, Christ has called us today to be Olympians in his name. He's called us to be Olympians by exercising our salvation. He's called us to be Olympians uh, by uh, representing Christ, 
And he's called us to be Olympians uh, by depending. Called us to be Olympians who are dependent entirely on Jesus. First of all, he's called us to be Olympians who, are, who exercise our salvation. Read with me uh, in verses 12, 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only is my presence, but also much more my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his, his good pleasure. Uh, Christ has called us to be Olympians who exercise salvation by exercising what is already true about us. Uh, before, Paul preach, before Paul reaches this point in the text, he had previously stated in the beginning in Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will surely bring to completion. And then again in 9-11, through 11, he says, uh, in relation to Christ's humility, Therefore, because Christ, has humbled, because Christ has humbled himself to the point of death on the cross, God has exalted him to the point that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, to the point that God will vindicate Christ. God will make, God is proclaiming that his victory is certain. There's a sense in which Paul is bracketing our life here. He says, our calling in the beginning is certain, and the assurance of the end is certain. And so he said, what he says here is, in the middle, why is, why is our life now not like it is in reality at the end? If our, life is, if our calling is certain in the beginning and our calling is certain in the end, let our calling also be certain here. Uh, a question that we might ask is, so we think about Jesse Owens, is at what point was Jesse Owens the victor in his race? Well, we could say that Jesse Owens was a victor as soon as he finished the line that, that he, he, fin- he crossed the finish line and then he was a victor. But there's a sense in which he was a victor before then, wasn't he? Because there's, there's nothing in the race itself that added anything to Jesse Owens. He didn't somehow become a different person in the middle of the race. He didn't gain any, any measure of speed. He didn't change his natural background. He simply exercised what already existed. He simply demonstrated who he already was. When he raced, when he won, he simply showed who he was. His finishing was a proof of his identity. In the same way, Christ is calling us not to do something new in our salvation, not to add something to us, but rather he's calling us to exercise, to live out, to work out what already exists within us. There's a sense in which, as we relate to this text, we relate to it with a certain sense of uncertainty. We look at the text, and we see, especially in the terms fear and, fear and trembling attached to work out your salvation, this notion that our salvation is somehow in doubt, that somehow we are responsible for our own salvation, and if our efforts are not successful, neither will our salvation be. I want you to see that, that this notion of uncertainty does not belong to the text. In fact, it exists nowhere else in the book. In the beginning of Philippians 1.6, he says, I'm confident in this very thing that he who began the work in you will also bring to completion. There's no uncertainty there. And again, in, in verse 9, when he says, every, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, there is no uncertainty that all those who are saved and all those who are judged will certainly all worship Christ. And again, in verse, verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to, will and to work. There's no uncertainty there either. So all the uncertainty in this, this text 
is the, is the uncertainty that we bring with us, the uncertainty that we bring to it. See, the problem here is we are reading this text as though it were the wrong kind of literature. We are reading this text as though it were uh, the, the label on a life raft. It says, inflate, paddle like hell, someone might find you. Uh, we read it like we read the instructions on a uh, Christmas gift. Assemble at your own risk. You might get it together. Good luck. But really, we ought to read this verse like we read the back of shampoo bottle. What does it say? It says, apply, work out thoroughly. Work in. Work through. This, refers not, this, verse, this text refers not to how we are saved, but what do we do with our salvation? And what we do with our salvation is we work it out everywhere. This calls to my mind uh, the upper room in which Christ was, uh, was washing the feet of his disciples. And he came to Peter, Peter who made the confession, as, as Dee so eloquently pointed out. And Peter said, not me, Lord. You can't wash my feet. I'm your servant. You're not mine. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. And then Peter said, well, if my, not only my feet, but my hands, my head also. And Jesus said, that's not, that's not needed. All you need is for your feet to be washed, and you're good. And what we see here is there's a relationship between our justification and our sanctification. That we have been saved, but it is, the job does not end there. Christ's application of our salvation to us is not the end of the story. But we are called to live it out to work it out, to pour it out in us like shampoo and just rub it in. Paul's, Paul's injunction here, work out your salvation, raises in our mind the question, what parts of your life have been excluded from salvation? Let's take a step back and ask the question, what does this mean by salvation? When we say salvation, what is, what's at hand here? And we don't just mean your eternal security, but we, we mean your obedience to Christ as your Lord. That if he is your Lord, and you belong in his kingdom as his children, then you are obedient to him in all, all that you do. And so Paul says not, says, not only is my presence, but much more my absence, as you, always, as, you always, as you have always been obedient, not only in my presence, but much more my absence, work out your salvation. That this working out salvation is an act of obedience not to obtain salvation, but rather to express it. Christ is calling us to be Olympians, exercising our salvation, living it out, pushing ourselves. Again, where in your life is Christ, not the Lord? Where in your life are there parts of your existence, your heart or your mind, in which Christ is not sanctified as a Lord? Perhaps in your ambition, not, not just in your ambition for worldly goods, as in you shouldn't, you shouldn't be too ambitious for things that are not of the Lord, but rather, are you ambitious for God's kingdom? How about your time? How are you using your time? Are you applying your time and exercising your time to the glory of Christ? What about your thought life? What parts of your thought life have been excluded from Christ? What parts of your life do you set aside? As we sit down, to, uh, sit, down and sit down to read the confession and stand up for the assurance, as we understand and receive 
the, the assurance of pardon we receive in Christ, are you excluding that from someone else? Are there, are there those around you from whom you are holding back the forgiveness that Jesus has given you? I picked up on this notion of, of, uh, of the Olympian in Paul's, Paul's terms of working. And then later on he says, in the hopes that I will not have run in vain, will not have labored in vain, that this calling we have is a calling to labor. Again, not for our salvation, not to obtain it, but a labor so that, that verses 9 through 11 will be proved to be true in our lives. Verses 9 to 11, Paul proclaims that all of creation will be bowing down to the Lord through Christ. And in like manner, not only should all of creation, but all of our lives as well be Christ's. Uh, this, this certainty we have in Christ that we are his and that the salvation he has accomplished for us uh, is indeed certain leads us to the next point that, call, that, that Paul's calling us to be Olympians representing Christ. Read with me in verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Uh, the term that Paul uses here for God's work is the, the word from which we get the term energy. God is energizing you to will and to work. He is not only energizing you or giving you power or working inside you for the purpose of your working, but he's also working in you to change your willing. Think about these two things. These, are, these two things are very important. Sometimes we have a desire to, work, to, to accomplish something and yet have no capacity to, fill, to do it. Or many of us have great capacity, but find that we have no desire. How often do we sit with our very able bodies, with our very uh, ample time, on the couch and watch a TV show? Uh, or, or sit and just waste time away? Or sit occupied by things that are good, but not of most importance? Christ says, Paul says here that God is at work in our lives to both will and to work. Sometimes we, we relate to this text and we think, well, therefore, I don't need to apply myself. Therefore, God's working so I can just lay back and relax. The problem with this idea is that you haven't played enough video games. See, if you played a video game, you're familiar with the concept of the power-up, right? A power-up, the, the turbo boost. Uh, the sonic time, uh, the Kung Pao grip. Right? No one who ever got a, a power-up ever said, well, well, that's great, I'm just going to coast on in. No, why? You, you push it. You push as hard as you can. You push as hard as you can because it's not just you working, it is the power of the turbo boost working through you. In the same way, God is at work in us, call, calling us not to relax because it was at work, but rather to work even harder, to labor even more intensively for the purpose of his glory. Uh, think about this. In the future, everyone is going to bow down uh, in praise and worship of Christ. Those who are saved as his children and those who are rejected and judged as his enemies all will worship Christ. All will praise Christ. We are called not just to praise and worship Christ at the end, 
But Paul's saying we need to bring that end time here. We need to live as though now were the time that Christ is being praised because he is. Now is a time when we ought to seek that every tongue will confess and every knee will bow, particularly our own. A lot of times as we relate to this term obedience, we have a funny reaction to it. We, we often think of obedience like we think of obedience school. Think about if you have a dog, you'll take your dog to obedience school. Why? Well, if your dog is deciding that the living room is a bathroom, uh, and the bathroom is a toy room, uh, and the toy room is a bedroom, and the bedroom is his room. When that happens, you take the dog to obedience school. Why? So the dog will obey. So the dog will not be a nuisance. Maybe to get the dog to do some tricks. So the dog is nice and the dog is funny. And we think of our obedience the same way, that it is just nice for God. It's just cleaner. Maybe, maybe we're a little more sophisticated. We might think, well, it's good for me to obey. It is good for me when I'm trusting God's, God's law. But we miss what God is calling us to in obedience. It is not just that we need to be good little children for the sake of being good or that we need to be good for the sake of our own goodness. Rather, God is calling us to obedience because our obedience is actually effective in accomplishing his mission. Our obedience is actually effective in proclaiming Christ's kingdom and lordship over all the earth. Our obedience is actually the means by which Christ is going to accomplish his will on this earth. We need to think of our obedience not like obedience school. We need to think about our obedience like rescue dog training. What happens to a rescue dog? His will is conformed to the, own, to, to the will of the owner, to the will of the master. He no longer search, searches for squirrels. He no longer plays with dog poop. What does he search for? He searches for humans. He searches for lost souls. He digs and runs and presses with the objective of the mission of the master, which is to save, which is to proclaim, which is to restore. Our obedience is not for us, our obedience is not just for obedience' sake. Our obedience is for Christ. Our obedience is to accomplish his mission. We are called to be a Christ, Christ Olympians, but we are called, called to be Christ Olympians in dependence upon Christ. There's a reason why I included verses 9 through 12. If you, if you look in your Bible, you notice that there are actually two different sections. But they're very related by that term, therefore. Paul roots his call to obedience in the authority of Christ, in the lordship of Christ. He brackets it, in a sense, by Christ's exaltation and then by Christ working in us. We are called to be Olympians who are dependent upon Christ. Look with me in verse 12. Uh, therefore, not, not as only my presence, but much more my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We talked before about how we tend to approach this text with uncertainty. And a lot of it has to do with these terms, fear and trembling, uh, as though Paul is advocating for us a, a sense of despair, as though Paul is advocating for us a, a sense that uh, it is not certain or all might very well be lost but we're misreading this term fear and trembling. Allie and I have a little dog. Her name is Pip. Pip is a tiny little thing. Um, 
And she's, she's adorable and obedient, except when she's not. And when she's not, we, we yell at her. Uh, Allie used to be a trainer at a zoo, so she's really good, great at yelling at animals. Um, <laughs> we yell at her, and, and very quickly, her demeanor changes. You see, when, when Pippa's being disobedient, she's come to believe that she is living in her house, that she's playing in her yard, that she is her dog. The problem with this is Pip is not Pip's dog. Pip is our dog. And when we yell at her, she's trembling not because of uncertainty or fear. She has no fear she's going to be kicked out. We've never thrown her out of the house. We've never hit her or beat her. We've never withheld food. There's never been a time that we've abused Pip. There's not a sense in which Pip is terrified of us. Pip is afraid for her life. There's no sense in which Pip has any uncertainty. What her fear and her trembling represents is the fact that she is our dog. Her fear and her trembling represents the fact that she is not her own. Her fear and her trembling represent that she is humble. And this is what Paul's calling us to. He is calling us to fear and trembling in humility. We can see this in the way that Paul uses these terms elsewhere. In 1 Corinthians 2.3, he talks about, how, about his own demeanor when he came to the Corinthians. The Corinthians had this notion that they were exalted and they were proud and they didn't need anyone to come to, come to them. And so Paul came to them in this very, very humble manner. And he said, says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And then in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 6, Paul's writing to the Corinthians again because they, they got his letter and they realized we're in error and they changed their ways and he sent his friend to them and Paul says, and, and my friend commended you for humility because you were there with him and you received him with fear and trembling. Right? Again, demarking humility. And then in Ephesians, Ephesians, Paul talks again about how our fear and our trembling references our humility before Christ. Christ calls us to obedience with fear and trembling in humility before Christ. Why? Because we are dependent upon him. We are dependent upon his work in our lives, and we are dependent upon him because he is our master, and we are his. Look look with me in uh, verse uh, 15 that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Our humility is tied to our adoption. Our humility is tied to our being children. We are children, and that makes us less than our God. Not less in uncertainty, not less in fear, but less in dependence, less in reliance. The reason why this text is so important for us is because we, as members of Christ Central, are called to live out lives as, obedience, as obedient Olympians of Christ. We are called to press onward toward the goal of Christ's exaltation. We are called to seek that he might be proclaimed by every tongue, that he will be worshipped by every knee. And as we face this big, bad world, and we look at our own limited abilities, we have this tendency to, to realize that we can't do it. It's too much for me. It's too big for me. And so Paul says, 
we are called to live out lives of obedience for Christ is at work in us and through us for his good will and for his good working. We are dependent upon Christ in representing Christ. We mentioned before how the term God's working in you is the word from which we derive the term energy. But the same term again is used when he refers to our working. He says, Christ is at work in you. He's he's working with creative energy for your willing and for your creative energizing. Christ is calling us to replicate his work in our lives in the lives of those around us. And to do this in humility and dependence upon Christ. The Philippians had, a, uh, um, had an error. You can see that error in verse 12. As you have always obeyed, so now, not only is my presence, but much more my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You, they might, we might have a tendency to look at that, ter- that verse and read it as though the Philippians were putting on errors, as though the Philippians were, were being two-faced. When Paul's around, they were being obedient. But as soon as he left, oh man, it's time to party. But that's not the case here. There's something actually much more grievous that's going on in the Philippians' lives. They've associated the person and work of Paul with the person and work of Christ. That is, when Paul is here, Christ is here. When Paul is working, Christ is working. But when Paul is absent, then the fear comes. Then the uncertainty comes. Is God really at work? Is God really here? And Paul exhorts them and says, not only is my presence, but much more my absence, because even in my absence, Christ Jesus is at work in your hearts and your souls. Reflect on this for a minute. Think about the areas of your life in which you feel and perceive and understand the presence and work of God in contrast to places that you don't. This morning as we were singing, I was just overwhelmed by uh, just the, the joy of worshiping the Lord together in song. It just, it just fills your heart, right? It, it's, it fills your heart to the point where you need to express it verbally in music. It fills your heart to the point where you just feel the warmth of Christ's community. You feel the warmth of the fellowship around you. You feel the warmth of God's love for you. But how easy is it to, to walk out the door, to go with our lives and find that warmth just disappears? In the presence and work of the music, God is present and working. But when the music is not there, where is Christ? And what Paul says is, in the presence or absence of whatever figure is standing proclaiming Christ's presence and work to you, whether they're there or not, Christ is at work. And Christ is the Lord. And what is the final assurance of that? What is the assurance that no matter where you are, Christ is there and working? The final assurance of that is that we know and we are assured that the last day, everywhere in creation, in the heavens and on the earth and under the earth, there is no place and nobody who will not worship Christ. Think about this as you are trying to interact with the world as an ambassador for Christ, as an Olympian for Christ. We think that I am so limited in what I can do and so limited in what I can accomplish. And yet, 
there is no one who Christ will not bring to worship. There is no one who will not say, you're right, Jesus, you are the Lord. Whether that is in salvation or in judgment, all will profess faith that Christ is the Lord, that Christ is the King. What does that mean for us today? If Christ is capable of of turning every heart and every mind to himself, that means that for you, as you relate to your neighbors, and as you relate to your co-workers, as you relate to the person down the street, that Christ is capable of changing hearts and minds. That Christ is capable of accomplishing, of accomplishing his mission and his purpose in this world. We are called to serve as Olympians for Christ in dependence upon him, particularly in our suffering. Look with me in verse 17 and 18. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul here is alluding to a couple things. One, he's alluding back to the Old Testament sacrifices. There were a wide variety of sacrifices. One of them was a grain offering, which was a plate of grain that you bring. Sometimes you just set it there. Sometimes you set it on fire and burn it. Uh, and then there was a drink offering, where you take a, take a bottle of wine and you, you pop up the top and you pour it out. Sometimes you pour the, the, the wine over the grain, which seems to be kind of the image that Paul's using here. But he's using another image as well, and that is Paul is presently, as he writes this, in prison in Rome. And he is awaiting trial, a trial that may result in his execution, his martyrdom. And that former martyrdom is beheading. Paul is, is using this as a euphemism to describe what it might happen to him. What he says is, they might pop my top and pour me out. This is a gruesome image. But Paul speaks with it lightly, not because he wants to make light of it, but rather because he wants to make much of Christ. He says, it's a gruesome thing that might happen to me. But even if that does, even if my life ends in death, even then, Christ is at work. And Christ will work through my suffering and work, will work through your suffering. And he described it in such a way that he says that his suffering will be of benefit to the Philippians in their suffering. What he says to them is, you all need to be rejoicing as you are suffering, as you are, are, are humiliating yourselves to one another in pursuit of the gospel, and relate to me and my death like you would a party. Paul relates to his execution like he does a bottle of champagne. He says, if I die, think about popping, a bop of sh- uh, bop- thinking about popping the top off a bottle of champagne and pouring it out. You all, need, you all need to celebrate and rejoice because Christ is at work through the suffering in my life and in your life. Christ has called us to be Olympians in all areas of our lives. He's called us to be Olympians by exercising our salvation, by living it out. Paul asks us, where in your life is Christ not the Lord? Where in your life is something aside from Christ the center of your attention? Where, aside, where in your life is where something aside from Christ 
the measure of what is right. He calls us to represent to serve as an Olympian by representing Christ, by replicating Christ's work, energizing work in the lives of those around you. He calls you to replicate Christ by obedient by being obedient in a way that furthers His work. Christ calls you, Paul calls you to be Olympian, Olympians for Christ, who are dependent upon Christ, who are dependent upon Christ no matter where you are, no matter what stage of life you're in, but also no matter what kind of suffering you're in, relying on Jesus, that he's at work in and through you. Christ calls us to press onwards toward this goal, to press onwards to the exaltation of Christ, knowing that the last day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So, the time remains for us to be doing so as well. You know, <clears throat> the author of Hebrews speaks about this in Hebrews 3 and 4. He sets aside one day for repentance. He sets aside one day for obeying God. He sets aside one day for listening to God's voice and responding in faith and obedience. All right, get, get your calendars out because it's going to, come, it's going to pass, pass by fast. Are you ready? Hebrews says, only one day you need to repent and obey, and that is today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, Christ is not calling you to obey yesterday, and he's not calling you to obey tomorrow but he calls you to devote today to him. Friends, we are called to be Christ Olympians. Let us exercise our faith for Christ. Let us represent Christ in the world around us. Let us rely and depend upon him alone.